Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. The APN is currently looking for network sponsors. Hear your company right here at the beginning of the show in over 60 episodes a month on 18 different shows and reach 70,000 subscribers. Contact the APN via chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. That's chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com to sponsor the only archaeology education and outreach podcast network. And welcome to the Archaeology Podcast, Episode 18. I'm Chris Webster. And I'm April Camp Whitaker. On today's show, we talk to Dr. Jeff Smith, a co-author on the recent American Antiquity article about the dating of prehistoric sandals in a cave in the Great Basin. Let's dig a little deeper. Well, welcome to the podcast. Welcome back, April. Your your schedule is uh, not exactly freed up because of the end of school because you complicated it, but it's good to have you back. Thank you. Yeah, I uh, I chose to have twins, um, <laughs> and so kind of busy my life a little bit. So I've taken about four or five weeks of uh, quote unquote maternity leave from the podcast. Um, so it's exciting to be back. And if you hear jingly children's music at any point in the background, <laughs> I apologize. That is definitely coming from my end. It's not our new theme music? Uh, you know, we could nice. make it that. It's some <laughs> lovely renditions of classic children's songs. Nice, nice. All right, well, let's get into our topic. Um, I'm going to introduce uh, Dr. Smith here in a second. Uh, we There's a recent article in the latest issue of American Antiquity, and if you want to uh, see that, we'll have a link to the article in the show notes. It is behind uh, a paywall, so you have to be an SAA member to see the article. However... That's why we do these shows, so we can get this kind of information out to people that might not have access to it and to talk to the uh, to the researchers and, uh, and as we said in the intro, dig a little deeper and kind of get into the thing, uh, get into the article. So Dr. Smith is an associate professor, the graduate program director, and the executive director of the Great Basin Paleo-Indian Research Unit at the University of Nevada, Reno. He received his PhD from the University of Wyoming. Dr. Smith specializes in Paleo-Indian archaic transition in the Great Basin of the United States. Great Basin Prehistory and Paleoecology, Lithic Technological Organization, Hunter-Gatherer Mobility, and the Peopling of the New World. He's actively actively involved in fieldwork throughout the Great Basin and is currently directing the analysis of artifact assemblages from a number of prominent Great Basin sites. In addition to his research, Dr. Smith teaches a number of classes at the University of Nevada, Reno, mostly upper-level undergraduate courses and graduate courses. He has authored or co-authored nearly 30 scholarly articles since earning his PhD in 2010. Jeff, welcome to the Archaeology Show. Thank you for having me. 
All right. So this is a, a little bit different format. So if there's any audio issues that I wasn't able to correct, I'll let you know. Let me know because we don't we normally record over Skype, but Jeff is in a studio here with me, and we have April via Skype. So. It's a, it's a little different setup, and I hope that it all works out well. Um, if you don't notice anything, then we did our jobs okay. <laughs> but uh, the article that we're going to talk about in the most recent issue of American Antiquity is called A Collection of Fiber Sandals from Last Supper Cave, Nevada, and its implications for cave and rock shelter abandonment during the Middle Holocene. And this is a really interesting um, article. It was co-authored by um, Jeff Smith, Aaron Olivier, and Pat Barker. So, Jeff, why don't you first start off by telling us what is Last Supper Cave? Last Supper Cave is a, a stratified rock shelter uh, near the Oregon-Nevada border in far western northwest Nevada. It was uh, initially tested by uh, Dr. Thomas Layton, who at that time was from Harvard University. And in the late 1960s, uh, the Harvard expedition was recording a cave and shelter sites in the region, as well as open-air scatters with a focus on the earliest inhabitants of the region. And so the site was tested in 1968 initially, and the crew returned in 1973 and 74 to more fully excavate the site. So the article is, is specifically referencing sandals found at Last Supper Cave, but what other kind of stuff has been found there and studied? Well, Last Supper Cave is a, um, a treasure trove of material culture from uh, the Northwestern Great Basin, the record spans over 10,000 years. And whatever it is that students or researchers are interested in, Last Supper Cave seems to have uh, offered something. So there's a rich uh, perishable artifact assemblage. There's a very large lithic assemblage. Um, there's faunal remains. And, and again, whatever it is that someone's interested in, that site seems to offer uh, clues to the past. And how far back do the does the material in Last Supper Cave date? Well, uh, in their initial analysis of material from the site, Leighton and colleagues suggested that it was first occupied about 9,000 uh, calendar years ago. Uh, 30 or 40 years have passed since they uh, came to that conclusion, and that still seems to hold true. More recent uh, AMS dates on our variety of material uh, materials seems to suggest that that's about when the site was occupied, between about nine and 10,000 years ago. Okay. Now, why don't you tell us a little bit about the, before we have a, I have a lot more questions regarding like the, the construction of the sandals and things like that, but tell us a little bit about the sandals in Last Supper Cave. Um, you know, what do they, uh, what, what do they look like? What kind of fragments? There's pictures in the article if you have access to that, but um, tell us a little bit about the sandals that you studied. Well, in the Great Basin, there are three basic types of sandals. There's the Fort Rock type, which marks the earliest footwear uh, ever dated in the world. Uh, then there are two slightly later types, multiple warp and spiral weft. Um, these are differentiated by how they're constructed, and there seems to be some technological continuity between the earlier Fort Rock style and the multiple warp style, but spiral weft, which appears around the same time as multiple warp sandals come on the scene, um, are constructed slightly differently, and uh, that suggests to some people that they may mark a different ethno-linguistic population. Um, at this site, most of the sandals are very fragmentary. Um, there are very few complete specimens, and they're not as um, nice, for lack of better words, as, um, as some of the ones from uh, Fort Rock Cave, where uh, the type site was um, found. But what are these sandals made out of that allows them to preserve in this sort of environment? They're either made out of two uh, materials. The first is sagebrush, which, of course, is widely available across the region. And the second is tule, and tule seems to be a little bit less common. And so the sagebrush would be uh, typically shredded and turned into uh, cordage, which would in turn be used to weave these sandals uh, in a couple of different techniques. My God, just uh, 
the the amount of scratches I have on the bottom of my legs just from going through sagebrush, I can't imagine somebody saying, man, I can make sandals out of that. <laughs> yeah, and, and as far as we know, the cordage would be made while groups were sitting around the fire. Um, so it was a downtime activity. And then when it was time to produce a basket or a new pair of sandals, um, that would take a little more specialized uh, production techniques. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting to me that over the past uh, 11,000 years that there's only three different types of sandals. Do you think this is, uh, did you guys study sandals in other parts of the world to find out, well, is this kind of the only ways you can make sandals out of these materials? Or was it just, if it's not broke, don't fix it kind of thing? I don't know a whole lot about footwear in other parts of the region uh, or other parts of the world. I focus on the Great Basin, but in the Great Basin, there does seem to be three major types, uh, the Fort Rock, Multiple Warp, and Spiral Weft, with another type showing up uh, fairly late in time. Um, Part of the question about whether these types um, represent actual uh, discrete entities is that these may be overly inclusive definitions that we've uh, sort of lumped different um, sub-varieties into. Um, so that's one of the main questions that remains unresolved in, in sandal research here in the, the Great Basin. All right. So you mentioned what they were made out of. Um, I think we know the answer to this question. If you read the article, you do. But how did you directly date the sandals? So this project was um, primarily a focus of Aaron Olivier's uh, thesis research. And so uh, with support from the Fish and Wildlife Service, who administer the land on which Last Supper sits, uh, with support from the Summit Lake uh, Paiute tribe, who uh, operated within that traditional territory, um, we AMS radiocarbon dated these samples. So uh, fortunately, in many of the bags um, where the sandals are kept at the Nevada State Museum in Carson City, there were little fibers that had become detached over the four decades since the sandals were collected. And so we were able to go into the bags containing each sandal and collect small detached pieces of fiber. Um, Of course, radiocarbon dating and AMS dating is uh, a destructive technique, but we were able to select uh, small pieces that had fallen off already. And in in doing so, we didn't further damage uh, these artifacts. Mm -hmm. Were there any um, climate conditions over the last 11,000 years that would have determined which material the sandals were made out of as a preference over another, or was tule and sagebrush generally available most of the time? That's a really, depending on where you were. <laughs> that's a really good question. Um, we've long known that the middle hall scene here in the Great Basin uh, was a time that was uh, generally drier and uh, warmer than other periods, either the early or the later Holocene. And so uh, I would anticipate that as marshes uh, diminished in quality and quantity, Thule may have become less available, uh, whereas sagebrush would have remained uh, consistent across large swaths of the, of the region. So um, I, I do think that Thule may have come and gone in terms of uh, construction technique, depending on how close marshes were available to sites like Last Supper Cave. So how did the Holocene periods compare to today's climate in kind of the Reno area? Well, the general uh, rule of thumb, uh, and again, this is uh, in general terms, but the early Holocene was probably a little bit cooler and wetter uh, than it is today. The middle Holocene was uh, warmer and drier than it is today. And the late Holocene, after about 5,000 years, started to approach modern conditions, although there were uh, swings in temperature and precipitation within each of those broader periods. Interesting. I noticed uh, with the three primary um, types of sandals, one of them has has a name, and that's the Fort Rock, and that's from the um, uh, from an area given that name, right? But the other ones, multiple warp and spiral weft, sound like weaving terms. Can you explain uh, what that means so maybe people can get a, try to get a little visual of what these look like? 
Sure. So Luther Cressman, um, the father of Oregon archaeology, was the individual who defined these types beginning in the 1930s. And of course, the Fort Rock sandal was named after the iconic Fort Rock Cave, where dozens of pairs of sandals of that type were found. But there are two other types. And as you uh, suggested, Chris, they are uh, referencing the, the types of construction techniques used. So Fort Rock Cave sandals are interesting because they were started at the heel and the weaver would work towards the toe. Um, multiple warp are uh, essentially a, a continuation of that technology minus the toe flap that separates the Fort Rock uh, sandals from these other styles. So multiple warp also go from heel to toe. Uh, and possess multiple warps, which are the, the rigid structure of the sandal. Uh, spiral weft are slightly different. In spiral weft sandals, the weavers begin in the center and weave a spiral of material outwards rather than starting from the heel and working to the toe. So that's a complete departure from this other type of sandal technology. And interestingly, it shows up around the same time as multiple warp sandals. So you've got these two very distinct traditions operating in roughly the same time and the same space across the Northwestern Great Basin. Has anybody recreated these using, um, you know, original native techniques to see how they work and whether one works better than another one design? In terms of um, optimal optimal production or um, whether one type lasts longer than another, um, I don't know the answer to that question. I do know that there's a graduate student from Oregon whose name escapes me who did make some re uh, reconstructions of sandals using tule or sagebrush and wore them around um, for a few weeks to see how they worked. And and they worked about as well as you would expect for a sagebrush or a tule sandal. <laughs> they they kept your foot off the ground, but these were not meant to be especially long-lasting uh, mm -hmm. footwear. Yeah, wow, that would be a... I mean, we look for $300 boots just to go do survey that <laughs> these guys lived out there and walked out there all the time. It's kind of amazing. Yeah. Uh, during during prehistory, I think time would have been the currency rather than the dollar. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, the sandal maker was, in, uh, was, was highly sought after, I think, as a skill. Yeah, I think so. I don't think these were things that uh, every, every kind of person knew how to make. Yeah. So most of these are being found in caves and cave contexts. Is that correct? It is correct. There are isolated specimens from open air sites, um, for instance, some that have been partially charred near a hearth, and, and those tend to preserve a little bit better. But as is the case with all perishable artifacts in the Great Basin, the bulk are coming from caves or rock shelters where they're generally drier and less uh, susceptible to um, degradation from the elements. How common are cave contexts in the Great Basin area, just for those of us who don't, you know, aren't familiar with the area? Well, there are, there are hundreds of caves across the Great Basin or rock shelters, uh, smaller overhangs without, um, that don't go back very far into the rock formations. Uh, of those hundreds, um, dozens contain uh, prehistoric occupations. And of those dozens um, that contain prehistoric occupations, there are probably, uh, I don't know, maybe 12 or 15 sites with records that extend um, into the early Holocene or even earlier. Interesting. So Last Supper Cave is kind of a unique location just in the length of its occupation and the quantity of material culture. Yes. In Nevada, there's about six sites with records that span the entire Holocene, um, pushing back before 10,000 years ago, and Last Supper Cave is among those. You know, now that we've got a, a chance to hear about it a little bit, what, what, are the, what does Last Supper Cave look like? You know, what does it look like internally? Well, it's a large uh, triangular cave that um, extends about 21 meters back from the drip line wow. uh, into the deepest recesses. It's about nine meters wide, if I recall correctly, at its mouth. Um, it's uh, probably 
five or six meters high at its highest. Uh, it's a large cave by Great Basin standards. You could um, park several automobiles in there uh, and still have room to get around. Nice. Is it accessible by the public? It is. It's on Fish and Wildlife Service land uh, in a very part of the a remote part of the Sheldon uh, Antelope Refuge. And so it takes a lot of effort and a high clearance four wheel drive vehicle to get there. But it is um, a place that the public can visit. I like how you said a remote part of the Sheldon uh, Wildlife Refuge, because the Sheldon Wildlife Refuge in itself is a remote part of Nevada. <laughs> it is, yeah. You you keep driving yeah. to Burning Man and then go another 60 or 70 miles past that, and uh, that'll take you to the cave. Yeah, we've done a project through there, and it was uh, yeah difficult to access, to say the least. Yeah. Um, so are there other types of sandals found in the Great Basin? I know these are the most common, but are there other types that are found? You know, I mean, you can't imagine... I always I always try to think of when I'm recording an archaeological site that, you know, not everybody was an expert in the types that they were supposed to be making. So there's got to be some slight variation in these things. And you even mentioned in the article, um, the lack of variation might be doing might be due to the vagueness of the description of some of those sandals. Like it's a really broad description that encompasses a lot of things rather than, you know, lumping rather than splitting. Yeah, there is a, a fourth type of sandal that shows up in the Northern Great Basin very late in time that has been associated with the Numic expansion. Um, I know less about that because it's relatively late in time and occurs at sites that I'm not uh, especially familiar with. Uh, coming back to the idea of this possible over-inclusive definition, I think about Elko uh, points in the Great Basin. These are large corner notch points that um, in the Western Great Basin seem to date to the last few thousand years, whereas in the Eastern Great Basin, uh, researchers have reported them from as early as 8,000 years ago. Uh, I think part of this this Elko question that we've been grappling with for many years is is the fact that we use an overly inclusive definition. Again, they're, they're large dart points with corner notches. And I think if someone were to really look at Elko points from these different regions and, and examine them from dated contexts, we might find that there is this variation. And I, I think that that's probably the case with multiple warp sandals as well. You've got this technology that spans uh, 9,000 years. It, it uh, displays a bimodal distribution with specimens very early and very late. Uh, and what we uh, need to do at this point is to really look at those specimens and see if we can tease out any subtle differences across space or time. Okay, well, we are going to define bimodal distribution uh, for our audience and get a little more into this dating because this is kind of the meat of the article in which you guys did. But we're going to do that right after the break. Back in a second. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. 
All right, we're back. And at the end of the last section, uh, Jeff, you started talking about something that that I was really interested in, and it was really kind of the uh, one of the main objectives of the uh, of the article was to try to answer this question. But you mentioned bimodal age distribution. So we have kind of a general audience for this show. Maybe not all archaeologists, probably not all, and that's our focus for this. So why don't you first explain what you mean by that, and then we'll get into uh, what that means. Sure. So uh, in, in referencing these sandals uh, and the ages of these sandals, they show two clusters of dates, the um, multiple warp and the spiral weft sandals do. So you have a number of specimens that date to before about 7,500 years or 8,500 years ago. And then there are no specimens dated for several millennia. Um, and then the multiple warp sandals appear again after about three and a half thousand years. And the spiral weft sandals appear after about 2,000 years ago again. So if you were to graph the number of sandals per millennium, there would be two clusters of dates with a large gap uh, between uh, those clusters. So that's okay. what I mean by a, a bimodal distribution. Okay, so let's talk about that a little bit. One of the things you did, I think you had 14 samples you tested. That uh, sounds that right. right. Yeah. One of the things you were trying to find is, do any of these sandals fall within that that gap in time period that we have for the Great Basin? So did they? No, uh, in short, they didn't. Um, and that's not especially surprising given the broader context of the lead author, uh, Aaron Olivier's work. Um, this article is sort of a, a snapshot of a, a bigger piece of research that we had done uh, in looking at sandals across these uh, sites in the Northern Great Basin. And and we didn't return any uh, dates uh, that fall within this gap or help to uh, really refine our understanding of, of it. Um, what the dates did is build on this bigger pattern of a bimodal distribution across 19 or 20 sites that contain sandals in the region. And it, it supports the hypothesis that this gap is not a function of, of not dating enough sandals or, or some sort of sampling bias like that. Uh, it, the, the results from Last Supper Cave really suggest that this, this pattern of early and late sandals is, is something real that's going on. And what do we think caused that? Because I, I think you mentioned in the article you do have um, a pretty consistent uh, projectile point distribution throughout there during that hiatus time in Last Supper Cave and probably elsewhere in the Great Basin. It's just sandals and other probably fiber objects that are not in that time period. That is true. Um, so at Last Supper Cave, we do have the entire sequence of Great Basin projectile styles, which change over time, uh, represented. Uh, so in the middle hall scene, the primary type of projectile technology in this part of the world is referred to as northern side notch points. And we do have a number of those from this site. So at face value, that suggests that while the sandal record is waxing and waning at Last Supper Cave, people continue to use the site. Um, that's certainly possible, but it's also possible that in general, the use of the site decreased during this middle Holocene period um, and that these uh, northern side notch points could have been discarded during one or two chance visits across uh, uh, several millennia. Uh, one of the suggestions of that pattern that, that we have these points but that the sandals um, disappear from the record is that how Last Supper Cave was used may have changed. So if you have a lot of evidence for fiber tech, uh, technology production, sandals, baskets, and artifacts like that, that may suggest that you have a residential population, men, women, children, the elderly, occupying a site. Whereas if you see the diversity of artifacts decrease and more focused on hunting technology, like projectile points, that may suggest that the cave was being visited more sporadically by small groups of hunters. Okay. Do other caves in the area show a um, the, the same hiatus time period? 
They do. So um, there's about 20 sandal-bearing sites across the northwestern Great Basin, uh, ranging from up near Bend to down in the Black Rock Desert. And as part of Aaron's thesis research, he looked at the records from these sandal-bearing sites, asking the questions um, that we just discussed. So mm-hmm. are there radiocarbon dates from the Middle Holocene during this gap in the sandal chronologies? Are there northern side-notch points marking Middle Holocene occupations? And it turns out that virtually all of these sandal-bearing sites there's either a big gap in the radiocarbon dates on other types of artifacts, or there's very low frequencies of northern side notch points. And so together, those lines of evidence suggest to Aaron and I and Pat Barker, the third author, uh, author on this paper, that these sites for some reason are not being used during this period as heavily um, as before or after the Middle Holocene. Okay. So going back just a tiny step, can we talk a little bit about the different discard processes that might have kind of impacted... Um, sort of the differences between some of these other artifact types and sandals. So why are sandals being left in these caves? That's a great question um, that I haven't thought a lot about, but uh, my initial impression is that these caves provided a shade, which is an important commodity in the desert. Uh, They provided a place to get out of the rain or snow. And so these would have been hubs of activity, either for small uh, mobile populations or for larger communities that were uh, operating uh, out of these caves as as residential bases. And so if you envision um, where we conduct our own types of, of maintenance activities today, it's, it's generally near our house or near our home. And so we think that artifacts were being discarded at these locations as groups were producing new ones um, during uh, short or long-term occupations. Okay. So things like sandals, as they're being worn out, they're kind of being discarded near your home and you're making yourself new sandals. But Absolutely. But like a projectile point that gets broken on a hunting trip, you're more like, you're not going to leave your shoe behind if you still have to walk home. Um, <laughs> but you're probably going to leave a broken tool behind if you don't really need it anymore. <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> that That is certainly possible. We do see some evidence of uh, hunters bringing back uh, spears with broken projectiles still attached to them, uh, having them undo the sinew and discarding the bases of the points at sites like Last Supper Cave. And in fact, at Last Supper, we've got a half dozen so or project, uh, projectile points from various time periods that still have that uh, unwrapped hafting attached. And we've dated those as part of a different project as well. Yeah, I'm, I'm wondering about the um, uh, how much you guys have thought about this and the, and the discarding of sandals in a cave. I would imagine that old sort of dried out uh, sagebrush or tule, if you threw it in the fire, it would probably create a lot of smoke, would be would be my guess, which if they had a fire in the cave or near the near the entrance of the cave, that's where I would throw my old discarded sandals is probably in the fire. I'd use them to start a fire, probably. You know, they'd probably be good for that. So I'm curious as to what you think just personally, why they would just discard them in the cave. Were there burials associated with any of these things or is it really just household trash? No, Last Supper Cave uh, contains no burials, and the site was completely excavated in the 1970s. So mm-hmm. um, this is the equivalent to our own household trash. Um, some of the sandals uh, do display some charring, so they may have been thrown in or near the fire, but others are uh, just discarded across the site. Uh, and why that is, is is kind of a mystery. Most of them are very fragmentary. They show a lot of uh, miles on them, and, and they had uh, definitely reached the end of their useful lives. Is this similar, um, the use wear and, and the, I guess, the distribution pattern of these things, is that s- similar in other caves uh, in Nevada or is it unique? 
It, it's generally the same. We're looking at small fragments of larger artifacts that were broken, worn out, and discarded. Uh, Fort Rock Cave is kind of an exception where dozens of pairs of relatively well-preserved sandals were recovered. Uh, most of them were worn uh, and, and at the end of their lives. But there does seem to be more complete specimens from at least that site. Okay. So let's dive a little deeper into why we think that there's this massive hiatus. Uh, you mentioned some some things in the in the conclusions of your article here, talking about um, you know distribution patterns, hunting patterns, and things like that. Like maybe they weren't up near the caves anymore; they were favoring more open air sites during this time period. Um, first off, what's the I guess what's the evidence for that? And then um, is this also sort of climate related because it is the Middle Holocene and that was a different climate? Uh, I do think it was related to climate, absolutely. Um, as early as the 1940s, Ernst Antevs, uh, a fairly uh, well-known geologist, argued that the Middle Holocene in the Great Basin was so hot and so dry that large uh, areas of it were essentially abandonment. He called it the mm -hmm. long drought and, and suggested that people um, move to more well-watered areas. And I, I think that over the years, we've learned that that... Um, treatment of the Great Basin uh, prehistories may be a little bit oversimplistic. Uh, there were certainly hotter and drier periods um, that didn't last as long later in time. But in general, we do see a reduction for uh, diminished human populations. We see drops in the radiocarbon records of various types of artifacts across the region. We see drops in the types of diagnostic artifacts like northern side notch points in many uh, areas. And so there does seem to be this picture of people uh, either congregating around uh, remaining well-watered areas or moving to better areas outside of the Great Basin, perhaps. Um, we think that sites like Last Supper Cave and a number of these other caves and shelters that um, revealed sandals um, probably were being used less during this period. Again, going back to Aaron's thesis research, uh, most sites that produce sandals show uh, diminished radiocarbon dates during the Middle Holocene, fewer projectile points marking that time period. And we think that people moved out of caves and rock shelters as the early Holocene wetlands that were once located somewhat close to them retracted. And we think that people essentially followed the water. Interesting. So one of the things that I'm just sort of interesting, interested in is um, how this, how the work with sandals connects to some of the other research that you guys have been doing at the caves um, and the caves across Nevada. So are you trying, is there sort of a reconstruction of some of the activities of these early people and what life might've been like? So I guess simplifying my question is what, what does looking at these sandals help us understand about kind of daily lives and activities of kind of humans during the Holocene, um, especially tied in? I know you've done some other work with lithics and projectiles. Um, so what do we know about sort of daily life and activities? Well, in the Great Basin, most of the sites that we find are open air lithic scatters. So they're uh, flakes, uh, sometimes stone tools, maybe some grinding uh, implements, but we generally don't see this type of preservation that caves and shelters offer at these open air sites. And so it's a very one-dimensional view of the past. It's a, a very lithic dominated record. And so what sites like uh, Last Supper Cave and other cave sites offer is a more comprehensive uh, understanding of, of prehistoric technology and in turn prehistoric life. And so uh, we see, uh, for example, the types of footwear that uh, people were producing and wearing. We found examples of children's sandals, uh, giving us a glimpse into um, life that we just don't get to see if we focus exclusively on projectile points. Uh, what 
the sandals from Last Supper Cave um, offer to me as an individual researcher is a number one radiocarbon dates on um, unequivocally uh, cultural items. So uh, slam dunks in terms of knowing when people were at that site. Uh, they offer a glimpse into types of technology that we don't get to see elsewhere. Uh, we get to consider the ethnicity or the linguistic affiliation of these groups, uh, given that textiles do seem to offer uh, some sort of insight into different populations of people, at least ethnographically. And so the sandals offer a broader view of life at sites like Lassabra Cave, where I've worked, um, than just a lithics alone. So you mentioned a lot of the sites are sort of these lithic scatters. Um, are people basically semi-nomadic? Are they using, um, <clears throat> do they seem to have longer-term settlements in different places? What is sort of the lifestyle during the Holocene? Well, it seems to have varied across time. So um, during the, the early Holocene, when the, the Paleo-Indians or the Paleo-Archaic populations were in the Great Basin, We've longed assumed that these groups were especially nomadic. Uh, populations were low on the landscape, resources were fairly rich, and so groups uh, could afford to move around and, and meet new, new groups and uh, find new mates. And um, generally, we have long assumed that those groups were more nomadic than later populations. But increasingly, that idea is becoming uh, under more and more scrutiny, and we're starting to find a few houses in open-air settings that suggest that people were perhaps uh, semi-sedentary, uh, at least within the Great Basin sense, um, as much as later groups. And so we're really starting to rethink our understanding of, of how these early groups moved. Um, the general assumption during the middle of Holocene is that populations did settle in around the few sweet spots that remained, so marshes or river systems. And then during late Holocene, we see people doing a little bit of everything. So we do have the emergence of, of larger villages, as we think of them, um, but we do see people continuing to move. and and. It's really a question of, of who's doing the moving with any, within any one particular group. So if a group is quote-unquote sedentary, uh, they still have to travel for resources. So you may see subsets of the population traveling to get um, roots or lithics or uh, hunting large game away from camp. Um, or you may see entire groups moving and kind of foraging as they move across the landscape. Okay. Well, I'm, uh, I'm very consumed by this idea that, uh, you know, People weren't going barefoot for thousands of years in the middle of Holocene. Um, <laughs> it wasn't their 1960s period time, you know, when they just said, screw it, I'm not wearing shoes anymore. So uh, it's really, it's really, really interesting to me. So do we find, because uh, there was there was brief mention of the fact that people, maybe people during this really hot, dry period moved out of the Great Basin uh, in some cases. Do we find evidence of sandals during that time period and other parts surrounding the Great Basin in the West where things like that might still preserve? There's a sandal record in the U.S. Southwest that I'm not especially familiar with, and there are isolated examples from California that date to relatively late in time. But what makes the Great Basin such a special place, among other things, is this amazing record of perishable artifacts, including baskets and sandals and mats that other parts of the country just don't offer. And while I certainly think that that is primarily due to the excellent preservation in our caves and rock shelters, um, I don't know of any parallel record in other regions of mm -hmm. the United States other than, again, the U.S. Southwest, where similar items have been found. Okay. And talking about the uh, the excellent preservation in these caves, I mean, when you have a 
when you have a sandal, a, a piece of fiber that can last for uh, you know up to ten thousand years sitting in a cave. Um, has anybody searched, uh, done any research to try to find any DNA or anything on these? Just out of curiosity. To the best of my knowledge, no one has done any sort of DNA analysis on baskets or sandals um, at this point, but that certainly seems to be the direction that archaeological research is heading. Um, and, I, and I think that building upon sites like Paisley, uh, mm -hmm. where a lot of DNA has been done, uh, I do think that there is opportunity to do that down the road. Yeah, because I've seen my sandals after a hot, dry day in the <laughs> desert. I know. <laughs> there's, there's probably some. <laughs> I don't want to go anywhere near them after the end of a hot, dry day. <laughs> nice, nice. All right. Well, we've got some, some further questions on maybe some continued research in this area, but we will tackle those uh, right after our last break. Back in a second. I'm Jessica Uquinto, and I'm the host of the Heritage Voices podcast. Heritage Voices focuses on how CRM and heritage professionals public employees, tribes, and descendant communities can best work together to protect their heritage through tribal consultation, collaborative ethnography, and indigenous archaeology. Now back to the show. Okay, we're back. So I think we've um, we've asked quite a few questions. We've, we've answered a lot of uh, questions that I had and that April had. Uh, where are you going from here? You, you've had those sandals. You, you've looked at them. They've answered some questions. They've maybe created some more questions. <laughs> where where do you want to go from here and maybe what are you working on? I noticed you had on your your bio on um, on the your UNR webpage that you do have another article in press on American Antiquity. I don't know if it's related to this, but where do, where do you guys want to go from here to try to answer these questions? Well, there's kind of two levels of analysis and future plans that are going on. The first focuses, uh, again, on Last Supper Cave. Uh, over the years, I became uh, close friends and colleagues with Tom Layton, who directed the excavations of the site in the 1960s and 1970s. And he never had an opportunity to write the site up completely and pull all these types of artifact analysis together. And so that's one of the things that I'm focused on is farming out these smaller projects to students uh, who, who um, gain research opportunities and publications out of these uh, types of studies and pulling all that together at some point. And I anticipate that will happen sometime in the next five years or so. And so one of my main objectives is to um, shut the door on Last Supper Cave, present a comprehensive analysis of the site, and let other people uh, take the ball and run with it from there. Uh, again, it's a really important site. It's offered a lot of opportunities so far, and I, I do think there's a lot more work to be done. Uh, at a broader level, I plan on continuing my work with the Great Basin Paleo-Indian Research Unit across the Northern Great Basin. Uh, in my opinion, that's where the clues to the first Americans are, are held in this region. Uh, work at the Paisley Caves, Cooper's Ferry, and other sites uh, like that suggests that uh, we do have the opportunity to find some clues about the first groups to come into the, the Great Basin uh, in that region. And so I plan to continue looking for other sites like Last Supper Cave, um, excavating them or revisiting earlier collections in museums, and conducting surveys of some of the great uh, lake valleys in the Northern Great Basin for uh, other evidence of early groups. Are, are there plans to re-examine some of the collections from the other caves to refine the dates on some of this stuff? There is, absolutely. So there's a small number of sandal researchers in the Great Basin. Uh, Tom Connolly from the University of Oregon, uh, Pat Barker from the Nevada State Museum, now Aaron Olivier. And so uh, those three individuals 
uh, plan to continue working on uh, sandal questions here in the region. Uh, other researchers like Anna Camp, Gene uh, Hattori, Bill Cannon, and Kay Fowler are looking at other types of basketry across the region in these sites. Um, and I'm sure that there will be questions that pop up into my mind um, that sites like Last Supper Cave and other locations um, can help answer. So based on your experiences and reanalyzing some of these older collections, what are some of the challenges that you've run into um, and how are they counterbalanced by the benefits of working with existing collections? Well, the benefits of working with existing collections are that you don't have to destroy additional archaeological sites searching for data. Um, you know what the museum collections generally offer, and if you can formulate a good research question, um, you may be able to answer them using existing materials. So that's a great a benefit. It's also really beneficial for students coming into our program at UNR to work with existing collections because they don't have to spend a season or two digging. They can uh, develop the question, go to the museum, and, and answer it. Some of the drawbacks are uh, I, I was um, I was born the year that excavations at Last Supper Cave ended, so I wasn't there to see the work uh, firsthand. I'm relying on uh, excavators' notes, uh, notes from students 40 years ago, um, which generally are good, but sometimes can be a little bit ambiguous. And so part of the struggle is not having been at the site and trying to create the work that people did uh, many years ago. I often refer to it as doing the archaeology of archaeology because you're trying to search for clues about the people who were searching for clues in the past. Excellent. Yeah, I think that's uh, I think that's about all the questions we have for this. Um, I'm looking forward to seeing what you guys have come out in the future, and I think I think what we're finding out, uh, you know, as all these independent researches were done in the last 40 years, you know, we have these uh, these caves that were uh, really the life's work of some people. Um, you know, you have uh, Gate Cliff Shelter and some other things, you know, you have all these different things that people are just known for. But as we start to really have graduate students <laughs> put all this information together, that we'll really be able to start answering some big data questions that, that um, uh, you know, can start filling in these gaps, I think. We have this huge gap in the Great Basin, but if, imagine if we had this massive database of the West, we'd say, oh, there's where the gap is. This is what belongs there. They, they moved over here now, and, and they weren't here before or after that because they came from the Great Basin or something like that. Yeah, absolutely. And there are efforts underway to create large regional uh, databases of radiocarbon dated material to answer the types of questions that uh, you just suggested, mm -hmm. Chris. Um, it's a really exciting time for graduate students and, and undergraduate students in the Great Basin. And, you know, as, as research progresses and time marches on, we start to think that, you know, all the work's been done. We know all the answers, but that's that's just really not true. Uh, every project leads to new questions, and, and uh, it's a wide open field for anybody interested in studying the past uh, here in the Desert West. Absolutely. Well, if you're interested in uh, in helping helping Jeff pursue this, then uh, put your application in the University of Nevada Reno uh, Graduate Department. They do a, they do a lot of really fantastic stuff over here, and have a really nice big research area <laughs> with lots of questions that still need to be answered. So thank you, Jeff, for being a guest on the Archaeology Show. If you have questions for Jeff, email me at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com, and I can get those over to him. And uh, thanks for listening. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, April. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Archaeology Podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. You can provide feedback using the contact button on the right side of the website at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash archaeology. 
or you can email chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Please like and share the show wherever you saw it so more people can have a chance to listen and learn. Send us show suggestions and follow ArcPodNet on Twitter and Instagram. This show was produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network. Opinions are solely those of the hosts and guests of the show. However, the APN stands by their hosts. Special thanks to the band Sea Hero for letting us use their song, I Wish You'd Look. Check out their albums on Bandcamp at seahero.bandcamp.com. Check out our next episode in two weeks. And in the meantime, keep learning keep discovering new things, and keep listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Have an awesome day. This show is produced by Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info.